Welcome, it's Russell Alexander here to the Family Law Now podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Children's Lawyer's Office, or what's sometimes referred to as the OCL. Uh, by way of background, we're joined by a local homegrown favorite from Woodville, Jarrett Johnson. Welcome. Thank you, Russ. Thanks for having me today. I understand your daughter just turned one. Yeah, uh, time flies. It's a little scary. Uh, she looks like she's grown every time I walk through the door. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, this is an important topic. Oftentimes, we get clients who come in and we've talked about parenting issues and they ask us as lawyers, what do we look at? You know, how do we resolve issues when there's a parenting dispute? And I'll refer them to Section 24 of the Children's Law Reform Act that sets out various factors the court considers. But an important tool in our toolbox, if there's a dispute and it ends up in court, is to get a children's lawyer appointment. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that is? Yeah, I've, um, I've acted as a panel member for the Children's Lawyer's Office the last few years. Um, so I have some firsthand experience in, in working with their office. Um, there's two types of appoint appointments through the Children's Lawyer's Office. You can have a Section 89 Courts of Justice Act appointment um, where basically the court uh, makes an endorsement requesting uh, the involvement of the Children's Lawyer's Office and they appoint a lawyer to the case. That lawyer uh, is appointed uh, and that's where I came in. That's, I was one of the panel members that has worked with the Children's Lawyer's Office um, where I'd be appointed to a file and I'd actually be appointed to advocate and represent the wishes and preferences of the child. That's the one type of appointment, uh, as you know, and the second type of appointment uh, is Section 112 of the Courts of Justice Act where basically the court is asking that a clinician be appointed, a clinician who's employed through the Office of the Children's Lawyer most of them have backgrounds in social work and um, various sociology degrees and have worked with children most of their careers. Um, so uh, those are the two types of appointments really that the court can involve with a custody and access dispute that's before the courts. Great. Okay. So we talked about Section 89 and Section 112 of the Courts of Justice Act and the two different types of appointment. Who pays for all this? Good question, Russ. The Ontario government uh, funds the appointments. Um, and when, is it different than these private assessments that are sometimes used where the families have to pay certain monies to uh, private assessors? Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the advantage of the appointment of the Office of the Children's Lawyer is the government funds these programs. Uh, you can get a Section 30 under the Children's Law Reform Act assessment as well. Um, we have the Court of Family Court Assessment Service in Peterborough, which is excellent, um, but it's not great for some of our low to, to mid-income families. Uh, the reality is one of those assessments can cost anywhere from four to $6,000. Right. So we have this tool in our toolbox. Uh, it's potentially going to come to it as, at no cost because the government's going to pay for it. How do we get an assessment? Like, how do we go about getting a, an order for the children's lawyer? Yeah, well, it, it, it's becoming harder and harder, as you know. We're constantly um, dealing with, with uh, cuts to resources, right, in, in our area. And one of the things I think uh, we're all struggling with is that um, the children's lawyer is having to become more selective in the files that they'll agree to become involved with. So I should clarify that for our listeners, that 
when, uh, when a judge makes an endorsement for the involvement of the Children's Lawyer's Office, whether it's for a clinician, Section 112 report, which is a written report and investigation, or whether it's for the appointment of a lawyer to represent the wishes and preferences of the children, um, they ultimately have to agree to take on the file. Right. So it's almost <coughs> not really an order, it's a request. That's right. And then the Children's Lawyer's Office, based on resources and funds, I suppose, and the circumstances, uh, will decide whether or not they're going to take on that request. That's right. So the judges try to uh, lay out and delineate for the Office of the Children's Lawyer in their endorsement what the issues are, what some of the more egregious facts of the case are, why we, the court is, is asking for their assistance right. on the file. And so with the public, sometimes the lawyers or the court will give us feedback by saying there's no clinical issues here that I can see an assessment would aid. Can you talk about what they mean when they say clinical issues? Yeah, um, so, so there's criteria um, for the Office of the Children's Lawyer and uh, especially when they're dealing with uh, requests through Section 112, which would be for a clinician to investigate and make a report. Um, if there's high conflict, uh, when we're talking about clinical issues, if we're dealing with young children um, and there's, there's uh, uh, issues of, of high conflict, if there's uh, family abuse, if there's family violence, if there's uh, uh, alienation, manipulation, some of the uh, more serious custody and access issues that arise in the family situation where a judge sees, sees fit to make an endorsement requesting their involvement um, the parties then fill out an intake form. Uh, right. that and I've been to court and, I, and I've seen these forms and usually the judge will say you've got 10 days to get this form in and it's a 6-10 page form and sometimes clients are a little bit overwhelmed That's right. uh, by the form. Uh, but what I tell them is fill it out as best as you can. If you don't understand the question or the section, leave it blank. We help them with that. I usually ask clients to get it back to me a few days early so we can fax it off for them because if you miss your deadline, you're not gonna get your appointment. That's right, that's right, and, and the judges are starting to crack down on, on uh, individuals in the court system that, that don't get their forms in on time. There can be consequences or sanctions for not right. getting them in on time, which then delays the court matter as well. Right. But yeah, you're right, you touched on it, right? Uh, people are overwhelmed in a lot of these custody and access high conflict situations. And if the children's lawyer doesn't necessarily see the information that they want to see in those intake forms, uh, then they might pass up your, your case for involvement right. versus another one. And you're back to square one. Exactly. All right, so let's just say in a hypothetical case, we get an appointment, the Office of the Children Lawyers accepts it, uh, somebody's appointed, what happens next? What can people expect the next step to be? Yeah, with, uh, with a clinical report, a Section 112 investigation, there's usually a pretty quick response. If, if the Children's Lawyers Office uh, agrees to take on the file, usually that uh, clinician is sending out uh, a letter to, to so the parties involved. social worker. Social worker. Right. Okay. We'll be sending out a letter if there's lawyers on, on board on the file. Uh, the lawyer's office will get a copy of the letter. The, the, if they're unrepresented parties, they'll get a copy. But basically just introducing themselves, saying that they're going to be involved uh, in the file. Uh, and then the, uh, the next steps are the clinician is going to ask uh, both parties to fill out uh, and sign some releases, um, possibly for background information 
on um, to be criminal record checks, criminal record medical checks, information, medical school records, school records, CAS uh, records, right. uh, children's uh, services records. Right. Um, yeah, full background, and, and and the goal of that is to give them uh, a detailed background on all the parties involved, and then they're going to start uh, scheduling times to meet with both parties and the children. Will they meet with extended family members too? Yeah, in my experience, um, most clinicians or social workers that are uh, engaged to investigate the file, uh, if there's certain uh, family members or extended people or, or friends or teachers, people that have pertinent information to the custody and access issues, uh, if, they're brought, if that's brought to their attention, I find they're, they're very good at, at getting in touch with those people and, and uh, they, they treat it as collateral information more information they can gather, the better they can do their job, right? And my understanding is sometimes once the information's gathered and the social worker has done his or her work, there could be a disclosure meeting prior to preparing a written report. Yeah, absolutely. So what's that all about? Yeah, so uh, once they've gathered all the collateral information, once they've met with each of the parties, they always make, make themselves available to meet with each of the parties. They also um, I know most clinicians will even attend the home. They'll do a home observation visit um, or they'll meet the children at the school or, or an independent location. Um, one of the things they're cognizant of and they, they look for, they don't want any influence on, on, right. on the children that they meet. They want to try Coaching to... Coaching or prepping exactly. by one parent over the other. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we, we see it day-to-day, uh, -day, Russ, right on our files. and. Um, they're smart people and they're trying to look for that as well when they're investigating. So they, right. they either will have the parents take turns bringing the child to them or they'll meet the child in an independent location like that. And they're trying to ask questions to see if they've been coached and to see if there's some consistency to what the child's telling them. Exactly, right. exactly. They're looking for those consistencies in the collateral information. Uh, they're talking to the child, they're talking to the two parents and they're definitely alert to that concern. Um, and then once they've gathered all that information, they've had their observation visits, they've met with all parties, talked to all the collaterals, then they schedule uh, what you referred to as the disclosure meeting. Okay. So I'm a parent, I get a call, my lawyer wants me to attend a, a disclosure meeting uh, with the other parent and the children's lawyer and, and the other parent's lawyer. I'm going to walk into this room, what can I expect? Is it like an argument? Are we there to listen? Are we there to take notes? What should I expect? Yeah, that's a great question. People never know what to expect. Um, the reality is it's not an opportunity to really challenge um, what the children's lawyer uh, or the clinician has to say in that meeting. The purpose of those disclosure meetings is to have an opportunity for the children's lawyer or clinician to orally provide their recommendations or the results of their investigation to the parties at that time. So you can clarify certain points, but you can't argue your case. Exactly. Uh, I always tell my clients, um, you know, if there's anything factually that they may have just overlooked or... Missed or, a birth date or... Exactly. Right. Got a date wrong. Yeah, exactly. And that happens. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're human, right? And right. So, but it's certainly, uh, they usually take an, an hour to two hours and it's just for both parties to hear at the same time what those recommendations are going to be in the written report or what position the children's lawyer is going to take on behalf of the child. And I've had some families settle cases at these disclosure meetings. Absolutely. And they agree with the terms. They might tweak a little bit, maybe some summer time sharing or yeah. exchanges. And uh, then that agreement 
can then be filed with the court and a new order is put in place. Absolutely, exactly. And, and it's very rare that a children's lawyer clinician won't stick around to help facilitate those settlement right. discussions after they've given their recommendations. And I've also had other families who don't agree on anything. That's right. Uh, and so the social worker is then required to submit a written report to the court. Exactly. And that gets filed with the judge. I mean, that's it. You touched on it. Um, a lot of times, this is the first time everyone is hearing what the re recommendations uh, are, and it's obviously an emotionally charged event, and sometimes uh, it can be a, a very high stress, high conflict. And, well, if uh, the recommendations aren't what you expected or what you like, obviously exactly. that's going to be overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and yeah, so a lot of times uh, the next step will be for the clinician to file their, their written report. Um, with the court as right. well as both parties will receive a copy of it usually before the next scheduled court date, right? And so then that subject to case management by your case management judge and there's a mechanism that's available if you still don't agree with the report or the recommendations I think it's 30 days you have to file an objection a written objection to the report. That's right. So what's what's contained in that and what do you uh, judges or lawyers usually look for when an objection is uh, prepared. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, most people, if they are going to challenge the recommendations, they'll file what's called a dispute with, with the Office of the Children's Lawyer. That gets sent, it's much just like a letter, uh, will get sent directly to the Office of the Children's Lawyer's office. Um, usually, um, lawyers are looking for um, perhaps there's collateral information that the clinician did not follow up with or did, uh, certain individuals that had pertinent information about the custody and access issues that maybe got overlooked or, or were not interviewed throughout the process. Sometimes the factual content of the report itself may have uh, omissions in it and, and maybe uh, the information that's missing may be relevant to a custody and access. And that's an opportunity for the OCL to update the report or make some final corrections. Exactly. They're either going to uh, agree with the dispute and say, uh, okay, we're going to take another look at this, or they're going to maybe just, just adjust it and say, okay, we're going to follow up on that. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. We're going to follow up on that piece of information that we overlooked and then get back to everyone. Sometimes the dispute uh, will be found to be unwarranted and they're just going to send a response letter saying uh, thank you for your dispute, we've reviewed the information, but we're not going to take any further steps if they think that they're satisfied they've done their job properly. Right, but the objection becomes part of the official court record and it's an opportunity for that party to tell their story in the sense of here's what I'm disputing and why. That's right. and and. And a lot of times the dispute is basically a foreshadowing of the position that party's going to take if it ends up at trial or long motion or what right. have you. Um, so it's an important piece of information to the judge to have because uh, he or she can read it in advance and understand what the hot buttons are, what the areas of dispute are, and it may narrow some of the issues for trial. Exactly, and, and, and absolutely. In terms of cost efficiency, if you can have the report in the hands of the parties have have them have filed their dispute before your next conference date, then that conference case management judge is going to have both the report and the dispute and be able to make comment and take views on 
both the, the report and the dispute, and then it gives the parties an opportunity to hear from the judge before they make decisions about next steps and settlement. Right? Great stuff. I want to thank you for your service, but I want to just sort of tap your brain a little bit more. This has been great, Jared. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, so the flavor of the day now is views and preferences of the children. Um, and this, we're seeing a lot more of these appointments. Uh, in part, I think it's a faster process. Um, but can you talk a little bit or distinguish for our audience the difference between a view and a preference as opposed to a lawyer or a social worker assessing best interests? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this gets confused regularly. It's a problem right now in t terms of public education and awareness. Uh, since I've been a panel uh, children's lawyer, often parties will assume that when I'm appointed as the children's lawyer to advocate their position uh, to the court or to the judge, um, parties expect me to be able to just say what's best for the child and, and to advocate that and to bring that position forward and, and resolve and the case. And that may not be what the child wants. That's but right. It's what you think's in the child's best interest. That's right. A determination of the best interest would be what you're looking for when you get a Section 112 uh, Courts of Justice Act report from a clinician. Their mandate is to present a report that references and directs the judge to what they recommend as in the best interests of the child or children. When you're appointed as a lawyer for the child, your, your strict mandate is to present the wishes and preferences of the child, regardless of what may or may not be in their best interest. So very different from uh, a Section 112 report, and every time I'm the lawyer on the file, uh, I know parties are looking to me to, to tell them you know, uh, how to resolve the case and what's best for the child. That's not my mandate. My Let's mandate. put you in a bit of a difficult position if you think on a best interest analysis, I think this should be the outcome. But my client, which is the child, is reporting to me the following. Exactly, exactly. It, it happens regularly. And, and what I tell clients is the best interest of the child is what the court will determine in, in the process itself or what the two parents can work out as in the best interest of the child. Um, the wishes and preferences of the child is another position. It's, a, it's another piece of information for the court to refer to and to weigh in on. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's often, it often leads to uh, some problematic issues with respect to the parents uh, not involving the children or the child right. in the parental issues, right? right. Uh, and we've seen some close cases where you've got, in my view, often two great sets of parents uh, in terms of parenting and custody, it could go either way. Mm -hmm. And that one additional piece of information that the judge would hang his or her hat on is the views and preferences of the child, especially if we're dealing with a mid to older teenager. And you know, the 15, 16 year old indicating what their views are, that's gonna carry a lot of weight. Yeah, exactly, I agree, yeah. It's, it becomes more powerful the older the children are, right? And, and yeah, when we're dealing with children, you know, eight, nine and, and younger, um, the court's going to put more weight on what's best for the child versus those kind of cases right. you're talking about where a lot of times it's two, two great parents that just don't see eye to eye as to what the best interests of the child are and that's where those wishes become uh, very important and that's where you see more children's lawyer appointments versus the clinical report involvement from the Office of the Children's Lawyer. And we're getting more uh, children's voice uh, reports now. The Office of the Children's Lawyer will now, instead of doing a full investigation, they'll actually, uh, they provide a service where they'll assign 
uh, clinician to simply provide the voice of the child, which again is very akin to um, presenting their wishes and preferences versus a report that recommends what's best for the child. And the benefits to that is it can be turned around relatively quickly at a lower cost than a full assessment. Exactly, absolutely. I know you and I in our practices are always looking for family professionals that can, can act quickly because a lot of these custody access issues are urgent, right? Yeah. And uh, so it's an excellent service if we can access it. Yeah, and families need it. Any final thoughts? No, thanks for having me, and it's been a pleasure as always, Russ. Well, Jared, you know, the OCL's done some great work on many files that I've had. This is an important tool that's available to families and the courts when deciding parenting issues. I want to thank you for your time today. This is going to be really helpful. Really Absolutely. appreciate it. No problem. Thank you.